0: This is an aviation special. My name is Tim Mulberry. I'm your host. What we're doing is we are spending the month of February celebrating uh, Black History Month by talking with uh, people of color, black black folks in the AV industry. And with me is David Gibson. Welcome, sir. Thank you. So, David, you have uh, an interesting story in general. Um, and before we get in, into that, um, you uh, not only have uh, work work in the in the um, the Lincoln Center, but you also have your own company. For so for a second there, talk about what you do outside of, of the center, and, and what and how you're able to help your clients, um, you know, kind of ex- experience um, an AV experience.
1: Sure. So uh, Gibson Entertainment Services, uh, founded in um, August of '99, uh, initially uh, was just sort of putting out one single tour sound system for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, uh, and then. You know, 21 years later, what we're doing is providing full service uh, production for jazz festivals, primarily not-for-profit arts organizations. We do occasionally find ourselves in a corporate environment, uh, uh, but we also work a lot with uh, several houses of of worship here in New York City. Um, And so we do everything from sort of consulting, and when I say we, it's just a two-man band. It's me and my uh, associate. Uh, Sarah Alexander and so basically she takes care of all the, the paperwork and administration stuff and the coordination. She's kind of like a hybrid production manager and then I do technical solutions and then uh, she sort of codifies things, gets contracts signed to make sure we get paid but we do everything from sort of consulting uh, work, uh, you know, new facilities, operations. I've done a lot of that over, over the career and then uh, I'll rent you a microphone if you like. like. Uh, Everything from an SM58 to, you know, all high-end chefs or, you know, digital wireless or uh, you know, I got a lot of NKH mics. So I have a lot of sort of high, high-end high recording mics that uh, Broadway folks here like to use for live production. Uh, and then I have a couple sound systems, um, um, primarily d uh, PA. I've got, you know, several consoles and so we can, you know, roll out and do our own shows. And then we, you know, I have a lot of relationships with, uh, with uh, all the big uh, 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 shops here in New York. And so if we need something else, we get it from them. If we need more PA, we get it from them. But right now I have, you know, sort of a medium-sized sound system. And that sound system, even when I send out the majority of it with the Albany tour, which isn't currently on right now, Um, I still have enough left over for me to do my own shows, uh, depending on what it is. And so it's been a a long ride this year, like for everybody else. It's been really, really, really pressurized and uh, difficult from a cash flow and job perspective. Everything canceled, no real income since about March. We've been uh, uh, really uh, trying to get through. Uh, it looks like we see the, the light at the end of the tunnel right now so we're just now we're just trying to make it to the end right so we, yeah. we have an idea when we're going to come back uh, which i'm predicting to be you know full force and effect like september i think there's going to be a lot of summer summer activity and events and so i'm hopeful uh that we'll get some of some of that work as well and if we can just make it through sort of this next six months uh i think we'll, we'll weather this uh this insane storm that we've all been going through uh you know, this last
0: year. Yeah. And, and uh, I, w- I want to talk about that for a second and, and circle back around to all, uh, what the other part of, of your job, your, of your life, and that is Lincoln Center. You're the head of sound at, at, at Jazz yes. at the Lincoln Center. Yeah,
1: so Jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, I have a, a long history with, with Jazz. Uh, when I, I was on the road to with Alvin Ailey for many years, uh, and then uh, I was um, lucky enough to have the opportunity to move over to Jazz at Lincoln Center when they were building the facility uh, in Columbus Circle. And so I did two years of construction there. Uh, and then um, when we opened it, did three years of operations. And so I was director of production there in the management side. Um, <clears throat> I left to go work for a consulting company and uh, quickly figured out, you know, sort of uh, I wasn't the best fit for that that environment. And I reverted back to my stagehand roots. And uh, I, uh, had a lot more time to sort of focus on, um, you know, growing the company at that point. And then I found my way into Carnegie Hall. So I worked there for about 10 years uh, as a per diem worker, um, audio on stage, or you do everything when you're at Carnegie. Uh, yeah. And I worked at New York City Center Theater at the same time. So I had these two part-time jobs and then I had the business and that sort of made up what I needed to, to get done here in, in New York. So. Uh, Fast forward about 12 years or so, uh, and the opportunity opportunity opened up uh, for a head sound engineer at Rose Theater at Frederick P. Rose Hall, home of Jazz at Lincoln Center, (laughs) and um, uh, they hired me, and they hired me this time on the Local One side, so that's how I ended up being the head of the department there. I had my Local One card from uh, about 1997. And uh, so I hadn't really used it in a long time. And I just decided, to, they decided they wanted me. And I said, this is a great fit for me for where I was in my life. And uh, I've been back there for about four years, just sort of focusing in Rose Theater. So I manage a, manage a pretty awesome sound system designed and tuned by Bob McCarthy, um, who is a regular attendee. He comes in and he sits down in the front, unannounced, of course, and sits down in front of the console, sends so me a text message, selfie, I'm here, and we're like, oh, here's Bob, he's, he's here, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's an awesome sound system, we just got uh, a big upgrade to Adult Dolby Atmos system, Okay, wow. yeah, it happened uh, the summer before COVID, we, when we were out, truthfully, right when COVID hit, we were just sort of put, putting the finishing touches on um, the Lintec uh, sequencing, uh, it's in and operating, relay panels, everything, but uh, we're just sort of sorting out some some paperwork issues and getting the programming done for the different systems and and you know what happened next. So, yeah. but yeah, it's a great place to be. You know the Appell Room. My colleague John Yule uh, manages. They've got a um, a Maya Constellation system. Uh, oh wow! So, oh yeah, this place they're really decked out. They're, we've got we just got PM1Ds or I'm sorry, uh, ravages. Uh, not PM1Ds. Oops. Uh, we just got two brand new uh, Revages about a year and a half ago. Uh, so we're working a lot with uh, the Yamaha folks to get those integrated. And then Bob has now designed all three of our systems the one in the uh, Dizzy's Club, which is the nightclub. Juan Carlos Andrews is the, the head in that room, and he manages that. And John Ewell in the Pell Room, which is the iconic room that overlooks uh, uh, Columbus Circle and Central Park. And then I'm in the room with no windows, as, as we affectionately call it, which is a box and box construction. Really cool, uh, really cool construction. Very quiet inside. Really appropriate for recording. And uh, yeah, we 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 have a lot of toys, a lot of toys. So it's a great place to work. I'm really happy to to be there, and I can't wait to get back to to my job and my in my uh, my theater.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, you mentioned the fact that you've had your, your Local 1 card since 97. Uh, for those who are not familiar and and, and just kind of tertiarily, we can kind of uh, associate, assume that Local 1 is, is some sort of, of, of union, but there in New York, what does Local 1 mean?
1: Yeah, so International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, uh, IOTC Local 1, Local 1, usually I think the way the numbers worked in the locals is uh, by when the jurisdictions were chartered. Yep. So Chicago's two. Uh, I'm not sure what local three is. I mean, the single digit numbers are those cities are, are the ones that uh, were well, sort of the early vaudeville circuit, I believe. And so <clears throat> local one is, you know, uh, the first local, uh, about 3,600 members. Um, and um, in order to get in, you basically have to work in the jurisdiction uh for a number of years consecutively earning you know x amount of dollars i don't know what it is today but uh you earn x amount of dollars then you uh you go meet with the executive board and you, they just check and make sure you got 10 fingers and 10 toes and you're a good person uh you know there's some there's some degree of if you've made it this far then you, you belong with us so so but you go and you have an interview like a job interview and uh if uh, all is in order then you, you uh, get voted on by the membership and then uh, pay your initiation fee. And there you go, you're in. So it's, uh, go go, uh, IATS, really a, a great union. And this is actually my second card. Uh, I don't any longer have my first card, which is down in Winston Salem, North Carolina. So yeah, that's local 635, if they can respect it. A
0: few numbers down from, from, from New York, I'm sure. Um I used to know what St. Louis is, is and I, I don't anymore. I want to say it was twelve or fifteen, but I could be
1: told totally... Columbus, Ohio.
0: Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I know that.
1: Uh, and St. Louis might be three. Uh, I just don't Oh, it's not three. Really? Uh, it could be. I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I've already well, said I don't it. either, but uh, <laughs> I've already said it. But... And I don't and I don't wanna
0: be, you know, disparaging to St. Louis. I mean this is this is oh. my hometown, but yeah. It's a small market. <laughs> so, I have
1: been, you know, I've been there. I've only been to St. Louis a couple of times, and both times was at the Fox, and yep. uh, we uh, we had a good time. Ribs.
0: There are some places in St. Louis, yes, for ribs, absolutely. No, it's not. It's not Kansas City, and it's not Memphis. Kansas um,
1: City's my favorite barbecue.
0: Oh, mine too. Mine too. Um, and there's a couple of in L- in in, um, Kansas oh, uh, Kansas. Uh, oh, yeah. in Kansas City. Oklahoma Joe's in Kansas City, right. Uh, especially if you can get to the one uh, that's in the gas station.
1: Gas station. Uh, all right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, in old, old Sinclair, if you don't know what I'm talking about, in Old Sinclair Station. Um, yeah. Uh, and just for the record, I Etsy uh, in St. Louis is six. So oh. we we were both wrong. So.
1: No, it was close. Uh, I knew it was a single digit. I just wasn't sure which one. All right, David. Let, let's kind
0: of go back in in time here and talk about how you got involved uh, in the AV industry and your first uh, your first experiences there.
1: Uh, I'm 54 years old and I've been doing this since I was 15 and I never had another job. So uh, that answers a bunch of the questions that you just asked me. So, uh, (laughs) but I, you know, this is, you know, this has been my passion since the when I was introduced to this. I actually have an interesting background. Um, We have a minute or two. uh, So I'll tell you, I'll tell you this part and then we can come back to it later um but uh when i was in junior high school uh i had a southern school counselor his name was guy I Forget his, mr mr guy no he had a different last name I forget his name um his last name but called me in his office one day and he says uh hey what do you think about going to boarding school what do i know about boarding school in you know, seventh eighth grade or whatever it was yeah so well, i don't know because what's well, a school that you go away to, to go to and i said okay and he says uh you know, well, look here, take this home to your mom, uh, show it to her. And if she's interested, you know, uh, have her give me a call. So I take it home. She reads it says something about prep schools. And she looks, she lights up like Christmas tree. She's like, what? So she calls the counselor says, yeah, he's going. And then he says, full scholarship. And she says, oh Holy yeah. Cow. He says, oh yeah, he's going, you know? And, uh, so here's the catch. This uh, this school's in Lynchburg, Virginia, and it's a preparatory school, Virginia Episcopal School. I can't say that word Episcopal, but Virginia V E S. And traditionally, that school never had any white kids or black kids. So you're going to be first, you and two other kids. That's what she, she, he told my mom and uh, she went, yeah, whatever. Free. Yeah. <laughs> I, Ivy league preparation. You got it. Whatever. <laughs> what, what, what do I sign? Put them on the bus. Get them out of here. So, uh, so the uh, deal is struck. I have no idea what's going on. I'm a kid, you know, and she's like, you're going to go away to board school. It's going to be really great because you're going to be able to do whatever college you want and you're going to be smart. And just not that kid, you know, I'm not an AP student or whatever, but, you know, they were just interested in getting black kids into the school. So so she ships me off on on a bus and they meet me at the bus station and they were me and another kid from my my junior high school, Tacoma Park Junior High School in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, And uh, there's another kid who came up from the South. Julius, I think his name was. I still have a book here somewhere of a contact from the school from those years. And uh, they pick us up and they say, Look, uh, welcome to BES. We're so happy you're here. Um, why don't you guys just stay on campus next couple of days? <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, it turns out there was a big rally downtown. Hey. Uh, I don't know if it was associated with us or not, but the timing seemed curious in retrospect and hindsight. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, we stayed uh, we stayed there uh, on the campus, didn't really think much of it, you know, at the time and, uh, you know, carried on. Well, turns out, you know, that's a really bad environment to put a kid in in those kinds of conditions. And I didn't do very well academically. And on top of that, you know, I, you know, I didn't really have, you know, religion instilled into me. My mother wanted that. That was another reason why she wanted me to go. Okay, Episcopalian, no no problem. <laughs> He's going to be in church every day? All right, I'll take it. So uh, we're forced to, to forced. we were, uh, part of our curriculum was to go to church every morning, chapel. And uh, you had to go on Sunday. Uh, I think Saturday was optional or something. And I think uh, on Friday or something, I was leaving out of chapel and uh, I heard this distinct sound of live music. You know how live music has a sort of dialogue. Oh, yeah. Down versus recorded music. So I go around the side of chapel, there's a staircase, and I go down the staircase, and there's this group of kids in there, high school seniors, uh, practicing. And I walked in and they never blinked an eye. You know, walked in and they're like, I'm like, what is this? And they're like, Oh, who are you? I said, I'm here, I'm me. And they said, Oh, we're we're us. Uh so we guys, what's the story? He says, Oh, we're just practicing. We got a uh, we got a mixer coming up, so we're getting our act together. I said, "Okay, she mind if I hang out?" She said, "Absolutely not." So, really, that was it. I spent snuck in, skipped study hall, everything. I was in this base, this chapel basement as often as I could be uh, for the next several months. And as they worked their way through. Um, the set. Um, I was just there, so I learned how to set up all backline equipment. I understood the, you know, I started to understand a little bit about, you know, sort of setting up the stage. I mean, this is really, this is literally the beginning, right? This is the first moment that I'm introduced to entertainment uh, in a way that I'm going to be involved in, as opposed to being a participant in it, right? You know, yeah. An audience member. And uh, I'm just there all the time, and so. Builds up, builds up, builds up. And what did we do? We finished rehearsals, packed up all the back line and equipment, put it in a van, drove down the road to a girl's school, unloaded it all, loaded it in. I didn't know I was doing any of this stuff at the time. What I was doing, I was just doing whatever they told me to do. Set up, had a sound check, doors open, kids come, big concert dance mixer with this girl's school down the road. After party, while they're after partying, I'm loading out. Yep. My life today <laughs> parties going on and load the truck up and come home and i'm just elated i'm like that's it sold i'm done this is this is what i'm gonna do for, for for my life and end up getting you know very poor grades bounced out of the school shipped back to maryland uh end up going to montgomery blair uh high school in silver spring maryland uh, turns out there's a giant Auditorium there that there's a club in the high school called Auditorium Theater Technicians. So John Wilson, who I, I don't know if he's still with us or not, but this was, you know, we're talking straight up 40 years now, right? So uh, John Wilson was the head of the, the, ch- the chairperson, the faculty member in charge, and um, proceeded to learn all there was to learn about theater from him but from a high school uh, auditorium perspective, right? So, so we're focusing lights. We're running, you know, uh, you know, old, uh, you know, dimmer boards and everything was giant analog knobs. And I mean, we're talking 80s, right? 80, 80, 1980 to 1984. And, uh, by the time I was done at Blair, I was the chairman or the president of the high school club. And then my senior year, I earned enough credits. I, uh, I interned uh, the back half of the day, five days a week at uh, Recording Consultants Inc., which is RCI, which at the time was a prevalent sound reinforcement and install company in the in the Maryland Silver Spring area. And uh, didn't do good enough for them. They 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 got rid of me. And I was prepping shows. I didn't know what I was doing. I was prepping shows, and you know, guys would get out in their job and they're expecting to have 25, 25 foot mic cables, and they ended up with 10 because. I didn't understand the color codes or something. So uh, you're doing a terrible job. You're out of here. So <laughs> I uh, ended up uh, going to work for a company called Total Audio Visual Systems, and uh, I sort of ventured into the AV world. So back in the time of 35 mil uh, slide projectors and doves and yep. you, know, you know desktop uh, projectors, and I ended up I was there for about a year. I ended up doing uh, a lot of the IBM. Uh, corporate events which uh, you know they're putting out 150 slide projectors with dissolves on each one and then you know this was you know, looks ridiculous by t- comparison to today's technology but this is what it was back then. And staying in hotels even though it was just in the DC area we still stay in the hotels and work all night. So I sort of found a work ethic through that and um, I was also working for entertainment sound production which uh, just recently uh, shut down because of COVID. Uh, And uh, one day I started working for them, uh, Tacoma Park Folk Festival. Uh, um, Ed Casey, who's uh, well-known in the D.C. area and perhaps larger, uh, sat me down at his dining room table and started to schematic sound systems for me. This is what it is. So 17 years old. Uh, you know, sitting here in, in this hippie's, <laughs> in this hippie's dying room. Um, and, uh, they put me right to work. And so, you know, go out and do gigs and Patty would write me, his wife, write me out the check right at the end of the gig at one o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, when do I come back? She goes, oh, next week, you know? And so events, national sound, um, miles Clark and uh, Tommy Lithgow back in the day, uh, A lot of fashion shows, Hands Across America, um, you know, a lot of corporate event stuff uh, from them. And so I sort of started mixing that in. And then I worked for a company called, uh, what was it called? Pro, Pro, Pro Pro AV or something or uh, Pro Video. That's what it was. Pro Video was a high-end home stereo sales floor. Uh, and so you can be B&O, you can buy all the latest Mitsubishi, you know, projectors, bounce projectors, you know, and so we were going to people's houses and installing stuff. And so, you know, all high-end audiophile speakers and amplifiers and sort of thing. And so now I've got, you know, so here I'm, you know, sort of, you know, 18, 19 years old, I'm driving all over D.C., servicing hotels in AB. I'm doing uh, festivals and I'm working for, you know, the band at the time. Uh, so, you know, I'm really hustling, you know, uh, at that point. And, you know, I, uh, the rest is sort of history. So that's the front end of it. You know, that's like uh, sort of, you know, 14 to 19 you when know, I went to college. And that's when the cultural arts piece clicked. And that's a pretty story, too. So...
0: So you starting out at, you know, basically getting in, in, inducted into, into AV at a boarding school, right? Yeah. Um, through live music and into the production aspect of that.
1: Right.
0: Um, you mentioned the fact that you were one of three, three black men at the, at the boarding school. That's
1: correct.
0: What, when it comes to some hurdles, because there had to have been some throughout the years when it comes to AV as being a, a black man what what were some of those hurdles and, and how did you overcome them
1: well i mean i've been talking to my brother a lot about sort of you know the what we went through last summer yeah. and uh you know i have an interesting background in that uh i was born in georgetown washington dc but um <clears throat> i grew up in the initial part of my life primarily in suburban maryland so really you know, uh, not a black neighborhood per se, quite diverse, but uh, I would say that, you know, the majority of the folks that I lived around were white. And so uh, my environment wasn't an inner city environment or, 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 or even an environment where I looked at a lot of people that looked like me, but that's not to say that I was surrounded by only, you know, white people. So, but that was, seems to be, you know, the heaviest influence. So. My upbringing is just very interesting, in and I didn't, I kind of feel guilty about this as, to some degree, but I didn't really suffer through a lot of what, you know, people suffer through, you know, to today, and uh, I kind of feel, uh, at the same time, as lucky, I kind of feel like, I, I don't know how that happened uh, to me, and, you know, I had a recent thing that happened to me uh, here during the pandemic. I was... Um, house sitting out in New Jersey. I had neck surgery, cervical spine surgery last summer. And uh, I need to go see a doctor. And this is right around the time when, you know, uh, New York City was saying they're going to start checking people's identity if their ta- their, their license plates uh, didn't match where they're from. And I've never been pulled over. <laughs> and now I'm watching the news and they're saying, well, they're going to pull you over. And I had a car with a California license plate on and um, so I quickly, you know, realized that, it, you know, I might get pulled over by the cops here in, in New York. What am I going to do about that? How do I do it? That's been a solid 20 minutes the night before sitting in the car, trying to find a place to put my driver's license and registration where I didn't have to reach for it, but it wouldn't slide around while I was driving. And that's the first time that I've ever done that. I've been driving since I'm 16. I have never... Never contemplated anything like that in my life. So you know that's sort of a life story about you know how all of what's going on is affected. But inside the industry, you know, I guess I've experienced racism to some degree, but it's been it's been pretty cleverly masked. I've been lucky to work for um, I've been lucky to work for you know basically two of the biggest. Uh, black organizations, arts organizations in the country. Alvin Ailey uh, I spent a good chunk of my career with on the early side, and still associated with now since 1991. Um, and um, Jazz at Lincoln Center, who I've been working with now for just about you know 20 20 years or so. And you know these these are these are companies that have a lot of people of color that are working for them, and so I'm around that a lot these days. Has been that way for me for a long time, and I think that uh, maybe that's to some degree has, you know, made it uh, less of an obstacle for me. I will tell you that in Europe, of all places, um, uh, is a place where I experienced a lot more uh, sort of pushback, is the best way to say it, sort a of point mm-hmm. than I have in the U.S. I'm not saying I haven't experienced it here in the U.S., but but usually when you know, you're here in the US, people know what the company is, they know what it's about, they know what sort of the history, and people are like, hey, welcome, we're glad you're here. Uh, and you know we're, we're bringing in an audience to so a lot of, uh, when I say we, when I was a part of the company, uh, bringing in an audience that's oftentimes not included in the demographic of what's n- normally looked at for ticket sales. So it's a different audience. It's a black audience uh, in the Albineli world. Uh, and in, I think the jazz genre I think that's true to some degree as well so I just feel like I've been really fortunate I've had a great career uh, here in New York I never aspired to come here That wasn't part of my plan I was actually uh, uh, getting ready to move to Columbus, Ohio and I got the call to come work for, for Alvin Ailey and uh, I, I didn't really I got introduced in cultural arts in college like I said and I didn't really know what Alvin Ailey was. I had to get I had to educate myself. But once I realized what it was, I was all about doing it. But I wasn't to do it because they were at the top of their game. Yeah, this was this was the biggest dance company in, in the world, and they were doing the most shows and they were going everywhere that I wanted to go. And that's all I wanted to do was go. And so it was just a really good fit. And uh, I, you know, I I have so much to be grateful for for the opportunities that I got afforded while I was there and continue to be afforded. And then that's really where I gained the association with Transit Lincoln Center through collaborations of the two companies. And the transition for me to do that was great. Uh, and so, you know, I've, for mo- in, in, in those kinds of situations, leadership situations, I, I'm oftentimes the only person of color uh, on the technical side in the room. And uh, I don't know that I ever uh, viewed that as anything other than I'm here to do my job. Uh, And I think that because I've been able to do my job, I've managed to earn some respect and I gained a reputation where people knew who I was and knew what I was going to do. And they wanted me to work with them. And that's really how I gained traction with my business. So I, I, I just don't have anything that I can direct. You know, there's little stories here and there but I've really been focused on, you know, sort of trying to do this all at the highest level possible. That's really, that's really been my my motivation this whole time. And You know, it's been a struggle, but I think it's just, I think part of the struggle is, you know, is the, the normal struggle. And if there was some struggle that had to do with me being black and being in competition with somebody that was uh, not black, um, I didn't really care. I've always been the kind of guy I'm sort of, I need, to, I need to have more time than the next guy, but I never minded getting If everybody else had to be there at eight, I would get there at seven. You know, If I needed to know how to do something, then I'll stay up the night before and and, and learn how to do it, read the manual back then, go on the internet now uh, and learn it. Uh, I was gonna go and I was gonna do a good job. You weren't gonna stop me from doing that. And even if I had to do more uh, to, to do that, that was sort of part of my ethos to begin with. Uh, so if I get the opportunity, I'm going to make the best of the opportunity, and that's sort of the way that it's always been for me. So, I don't know if that's a, a, a an answer, but that's sort of the way that I feel about it. I, I've had, I've been struggling with the idea that I've never uh, experienced like seriously overt racism over and over. I've never, been really, I've never been arrested, you know. I, all the sort of stereotypical things or uh, things that we talk about, uh, I've never, I've seen a lot of it before, yeah bad things, but I, I've never been you know never been the guy that's you know got his life in danger for something that somebody else wouldn't have their life in danger or yeah and, and i feel like i i can't complain. i work for the biggest companies i i got a local one card i worked for alia i worked for jazz i know i've been in new york for this long you know i'm here fighting it out with you know all of, all the of big boys. I feel like I I'm, I feel lucky. I feel fortunate, and I know that everybody doesn't have that same experience. And uh, I guess that's the part that I, I sort of wonder about. How did I how did I get to what I got to? How did I get afforded these opportunities? But regardless, I'm thankful uh, for them for sure. Awesome.
0: Absolutely. Um, as, as we wrap up here, David, uh, take a look back, and, and uh, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of time travel forward. So you're you're retiring. You're you're at the end. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you, what do you want the the legacy of David Gibson in the AV industry to be?
1: Well, um, I feel like that I've kind of achieved some of that already. Uh, one of the big things that I was able to do at Ailey is just sort of modernize the way that they were doing their tours uh, to something that was more commercial than less not-for-profit sort of, you know, uh, uh, designed uh, and we were able to do that. And so I feel like even when I go to the show now or I'm backstage now, and I, and I go for a client check-in and I, I walk around and I see, you know, all flight cases that, you know, I was a part of designing, I, you know of course the crew is a long-standing crew there so I have a lot many friends uh, and family there um, and then you know I've been a part of upgrading their audio system to the point where like the sound is just like unbelievable on these on these on these shows I go sit down I sat down in, uh, at the at the theater formerly known as the New York State Theater, um, and you uh, at a lincoln center festival a couple years ago and this is before my d&b system it's even better now but i remember this night specifically And the soundtracks for the ballets that were performing were just really well recorded and i sat there and like, wow i mean i had nothing to do with it it's my my speakers and my console cable whatever but i mean uh, this gentleman russell collins that was a mixing show and i was blown away this this sounds unbelievable and then i think uh a couple of years later, we got the d system. And uh, that first system was a Meyer PA. And uh, we, we ended up in the D&B system for you know, logistical reasons. Uh, we're happy with that equally as well. I'm not uh, selling anything here. Uh, but uh, I just sit down in the theater and I listen to these shows and I watch performances. And you know, one of the things I try to instill on in that, I trained a lot of the guys that came after me and did sound. And I said, look, you're, you know, you're not just pressing play out here. And yes, it's a pre-recorded track, but You've got opportunities here. You've got opportunities whenever, whenever you go into a theater and they've got auxiliary sound systems, or special effects sound systems uh, to tie into them uh, and, and tie that into the theme of what's going on stage. You have a way that you can integrate what you do and, and enhance the audience experience. So no, you're not dancing, you're not up there on the stage, but you, you can make this an immersive experience. And this is before immersive PAs will really happen. Yeah. Uh, you, you can make this an immersive experience for, for people and really, like, you know, one up this game here for, for the, the way that people view what's going on. And I have to say, you know, the, the, the pre recorded ground stacked, you know, this is a, a, just part of the logistics of the tour, you know, PA just sounds fantastic. And uh, I think that, you know, that part of what I tried to, you know, leave behind at Ailey, you talk about legacy is to just make sure that the guys that are at the console realize that they're not just pressing play uh, on a pre-recorded uh, track, you know, they have opportunity here to actually, you know, really enhance their production. So I hope that that's part of it. And the other thing I think about a lot is um, sort of what I was talking about before, is sort of opportunity. And uh, what I'd like to keep an eye out for right now is Young Turks, you know, coming along, you uh, People that are just getting into the business. We have sometimes I have people uh, approach me. And they want to intern. I had a 15 uh, year old kid a couple of years approach me with jazz. He says I want to come work for you. I said, that doesn't really not can doesn't really work like that. I mean you know he says but know, you did.
0: I mean and granted it was the basement of a church, but
1: yeah. And but I was in school. I mean this is a professional yeah. environment. You know and you know you work at a brand like Lincoln Center. You can't just have a, a 15-year-old kid, you know, just hop on. There's just, yeah. you know, there's HR these days, which didn't exist back then. And, there's, you know, people uh, are, are concerned about liabilities and so forth. So I told the kid, come back when you're 18, you know, and, uh, you know, you, you've got a college attached to you and I can say, hey, let him shadow me for, uh, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, whatever you want. I'm happy to have, you know, a young person come along, especially of color, which this particular kid was. Um, come along and, and, and show interest in the business and want to learn how to do it. Uh, and I actually have a young guy that I was talking to who just was getting out of a purchase um, right when the pandemic hit and I hired him. And then like a week later, uh, he, I hired him for my own business Gibson entertainment. And a week later we were all told to stay inside. So, you know, we've been staying communication waiting for things to get back, but, uh, the opportunity to mentor, uh, people, especially people of color, uh, to get in this business. Look, I, like I said earlier, you know, I don't see a lot of people who look like me, you know, doing this. Uh, and it's been, it's been a minute that I've been doing it. And I'm not saying that I don't know that I do know many people, uh, that, that do what I do. A lot of them do it better than me. Uh, but I, you know, I'm happy to, uh, mentor people that want to get in this industry and try to tell them what it's all about. And, and particularly sort of, you know, shine a light on the fact that it's not glamorous. A lot of times when you're young, you think it's glamorous. Then you realize when you're, you know, especially in the sort of install world, you're crawling around in the ceiling and you come out and you're like covered in, you know, all the crap that's up there in the ceiling while you're trying to pull through wire and, you know, the, the, the various things you have to go through in construction projects. Uh, you know, you realize very quickly this stuff is heavy days are long, pay is not really that great, and you really have to be passionate about what you want to do. So I kind of try to do sort of a tough, tough love kind of uh, introduction to this thing, just to make sure that, you know, you kind of realize what you're signing up for, and that you uh, uh, apply yourself to, you know, your, the dedication, it's really passionate about what you want to do, because you're not, you know, you, you won't last long in this, in this world, in, this, in, in any job, really, but certainly not in entertainment. You get weeded out pretty good, pretty quick, I think. So. Okay. All
0: right. That'll be a good place to, to stop, David. Thank you so much to David Gibson uh, from Gibson Entertainment as well as uh, Jazz at the Lincoln Center. Um, how do people get a hold of you uh, or your various places?
1: Uh, EntertainmentSVCS.com uh, is my uh, business website. And then, of course, uh, Jazz.org, O-R-G. Uh, is where you can see uh, the programming that's available from, from my uh, current employer day job as I, as I affectionately call it and then of course Uh got to give a shout out to the folks at Ailey uh, you can see about their tools and stuff when they're coming here you go listen to some of these soundtracks and watch these dancers they're amazing.
0: All right. Thanks, David. For us, for Aviation, go by our website, avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others, including our two weeklies. One's called AV Week, looks at the commercial side of the AV industry, and the other is Resi Week, looking at the residential side. All that and more at avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv.